Hey gang, thanks for joining us for a very unique edition of Deep Dive. Now, we're doing something different this time. Normally we bring back our former guests and they talk about an album that they worked on or recorded or whatever, but this time we are bringing on first-time guest, author Greg Renoff. Now, I think most of you probably know who he is, but if you don't, a few years ago, he wrote probably the, the definitive book on the history of Van Halen called Van Halen Rising. And I've wanted to bring him on for years, but I didn't. I wanted to make it something different than just a normal promotional interview. You know, those kind of—they're not as fun. And I really—he's a buddy of mine. And I want to put him in the best light possible. So I thought, what if we brought him on to deep dive the first Van Halen album with us, which he's kind of an expert on because he wrote the book about the early days of the band, and he can promote his new book. Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music, which will be out on the 21st of April. In fact, if, I believe if you ordered it from certain like Barnes and Noble, you may already have it. I'm going to have two copies of this book to give away to everybody, and I will explain at the end how to do that. So we finally started a Patreon page. I'll give you all the details at the end of this conversation. So anyway. I hope you enjoy this. If you've read the book, you may know a lot of these stories, but either way, we get to talk with an expert about one of the greatest albums of all time. Certainly one of the greatest debut albums of all time. All right, I'll just kick this off then. So I have been wanting to have you on here. We talked about doing this a while ago, and uh, my hesitation has always been that I was late to the game in your book. I bought it at the first Rock and Pod. I read it I don't know, probably seven or eight months later, which by now is like two years ago. By then, you had already appeared on everybody's podcasts and people like BJ and they, sure. and I just thought I don't I w- I don't want to do another I don't want to make Greg do another kind of promotional appearance on a podcast when he's probably done a, a bunch of these already and it's a little late. And so I thought, well, how am I gonna? But I really like Greg. I want to reconnect with Greg. And so how do I do this? And after we started doing the uh, deep dives, I thought, you know, what if we had Greg come back on? We talk about his new book. He shares the stories he has and knows about the about the first Van Halen album. And that's how we sort of shine a spotlight on Greg and his great books, you know. And so it made sense. Now, I'll tell you, one of the hesitations why I took so long to actually make this happen is because I felt like in order to do you the service that you deserve, I needed to read your book again. And I didn't get her. I didn't read the whole thing. I, I uh, read the part near the end relating to this album, but I didn't read the entire thing. And so that was my hesitation is I felt like I needed to, I didn't want to come up short, you know? So anyway, we're going to talk about Van Halen. We're going to talk about the album and your book. But mostly, let's talk about your new Ted Templeman book, which comes out, well, it should be out by the time uh, this airs. I'm guessing that it's your access to Ted from the first book that allowed this to even happen. Was it always your plan to write a book on Ted Templeman, or did you just find out you had a strong enough relationship and enough great material that why not? I should be the guy to write this book. First, thanks for that very nice introduction. And uh, I, yes, I, it's funny. I, you know, you say you were like reminded me of a student who kind of confesses in class that they didn't do the homework assignment or something <laughs> like that. It's all good, you know. It's uh, it's all good. And uh, right. I'm glad you read the part of the book that was important for this conversation. Um, well, I had already read it a couple of years. Sure. Ago. Yeah. 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 Of course. Oh, no, I got to read it of again. Course. You know? got to review it again, right? Of course. Right. So yeah, let's talk about the the TED um, the TED book and how it came to happen. I was fortunate enough to 
get hold, a hold of Ted during the making of Van Halen Rising, and he agreed to do an interview for the book, which was amazing to have the producer of the album um, that was the central part of my Van Halen Rising book, and of course, is one of the greatest debut albums of all time, to be able to pick his brain about the first Van Halen record. It went off, came off great, and uh, what ended up happening was about a few months later was that I actually spoke to Ted uh, right before the Van Halen Rising book came out. Actually, he had heard a podcast, if I remember correctly. I, I think BJ's podcast had heard it and liked what I was saying. And it's like, oh, you know, remembered our conversation. I'm sort of like, yeah, you, you know, you really you really get it or you really understand. And I'm glad we talked and you know, you did, a, you know, whatever you did a good job in the interview. And I uh, told a friend of mine who lived on the West Coast and was uh, a little bit older and was around in the 70s and was uh, kind of a kind of a mentoring me a little bit with some of the promotional stuff and he's like well why don't you ask ted to do a book event with you and i was like you know i couldn't possibly do that and he's like he can just say no i was like okay and so actually i did ask ted and actually ted did say yes and he came down to veroman's books in pasadena california and sat with me in 2015 and signed books and talked to people and it was great and uh in the wake of that i bounced that idea off of ted to do a book about him. I never would have thought about it. In fact, if t- of course, if Ted had not come down, honestly, if Ted had not come down to Romans and we not spent some time talking after that, he was, you know, he was really, he was really um, jazzed by the whole thing because I think for him, you know, he doesn't do events like that very often. And I think the questions he got and how enthusiastic people were to meeting him and sort of, you know, as a producer, you don't get a lot of that treatment. And I think he was really like excited that people were really cared so much about the records he made, especially the Van Halen records that people were, you know, like talking to him about it with such passion and we're so like, oh, sign my record. And he was really, I think, enthused by like, wow, people really, you know, still after all these years still care a lot. Right. So, for, you know, it's 40 years later and he's not like running around reading blabbermouth every day or something right. like that. Like, you know, he's not. So I bounced the idea off him and he was, you know, he was, I would say, lukewarm on it at first. And when I talked to him about it and really tried to make clear to him that, look, I think you have a really interesting life story because we had talked more about his background as a pop star and how we got started in as a young musician, as a little kid, and uh, his his career as an executive at Warner Brothers because he was a, a a senior vice president and later an executive vice president as well as being a house producer. You know, I said that you you did amazing records, but you also had these other aspects to your life that I think make for a really interesting read. And so when we talked about that, and also I really emphasized that I wanted it to be about the music, particularly you know, about his relationships with his artists, rather than being some sort of like you know melodramatic. Oh, you know, behind the scenes life and drama of like, you know, like, you know, behind the music, Ted Templeman, I had this horrible experience yeah. at the end of whatever. Just, you know, people just always make these these some of these rock star books are a little bit over the top with that sort of stuff. And sure. I, you know, I said, look, it's going to be totally, you know, focused on the music. And that's actually why it's titled Ted Templeman colon a platinum producer's life in music because it's not meant to be sort of a you know a, you know let let's let's ruminate over ted's uh, inner inner angst or inner joy right. or anything like that just more about his work with michael mcdonald carly simon little feet van halen doobie brothers and it goes the list is endless in terms of those people and his path through the industry so that's a long-winded way of me saying there was no master plan it was just something that i sort of came to me in talking with Ted. And of course, if Ted had not come down, as I mentioned, it never would have been, you know, probably never would have been able to sort of sit with him and then have that um, post-event debriefing where we talked a bunch after that and he was, you know, willing to sort of entertain the idea. Great. He's probably talked out by now, but I wonder, do you know, does he like, will he, is he open to doing interviews? Because I'd love to have him on or at least hear his story even through someone else. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about it is that he's, 
pretty i don't i don't want to say private but i mean he's it's just not his it's not yeah. his thing in terms of that and i would say the interesting thing about that is that that's sort of the paradox of viewing this book with him was that he was willing to sort of open up to me and talk to me about it because he had liked van halen rising but you know as he always talked about himself he's you know he said i'm a lighting i was the lighting man mm. like he didn't want to be in the spotlight and so mm. he's you know i think also i think it's in my talking to him about this i think it's it's maybe not um just native to him but i think for a lot of producers you know, they want, there's a line between sort of taking credit and also wanting to give credit to the artist. And Ted was mm -hmm. always very focused on, you know, the artist wrote the songs, the artist did yeah. the performances. I just, you know, I just basically coached them. You know, I was like, the, you know, like a, a, a good football coach or a good movie director or a good lighting man and stuff like that. So I think he's, yeah. you know, he sort of, he doesn't really um, do that stuff. And in, in fact, the other thing is, is interesting is that, um, you know, his, you know, occasionally he'll do things, but the other thing's interesting is, you know, that, that, there are, I won't mention names, but there are certainly some producer types who are much more kind of interested in like playing that dual role of being the star along with being uh, the, yeah. but um, I'm not saying he, that he's turned off by that, but that's just not who he is. But I think, I think the, if you would go down the list of great producers, I think they're, you know, like a, like Phil Ramone or something like that. They're just mm -hmm. not, it's not their style, right? They're not their yeah. style to be out there, like, you know, doing all this stuff. Yeah. So, um, they're you know, not saying I, never, I did this. They're more yeah. about enabling the artist to say Correct. they did this. Yeah. So I, I would never say never in terms of, you know, mm -hmm. certainly about uh, whether he would do it, it'd be up to him. But that's yeah. sort of my always been my vibe from him that is he's he's sort of doesn't want to be on sort of like the victory tour of any sort yeah. of like, you know, that type of stuff where, yeah. um, you know, he, he the other thing, too, I would say is sort of explain that paradox, why he wanted to do the book or eventually, you know, mm -hmm. kind of came around to the idea of doing the book was that Ted was a history major himself. Mm -hmm in college graduated from santa clara uh, university and was somebody you know he really is a well-read person who really appreciates history and i think that's why we had a, a a good connection because obviously as a historian myself i was able to kind of talk to him about the stuff that he was interested in. i mean he was very interested in uh, for instance german history really mm. really did a lot of uh, speaks german as a conversationally has a real interest in that so we sort of had that that beyond the music stuff we could yeah. talk about so I think for that was the other thing too that it was, you know, for him it was about documenting these stories to also do credit, give due credit to someone like Michael McDonald or someone like a, you know, like even even more so like a Tom Johnson of the yeah. Doobie. I could go through a whole list of people I could have used instead of Tom Johnson, but for let's just use Tom for example. That Tom is a guy who, you know, Ted will praise to the to the hilt mm -hmm. for writing these amazing songs for his uh his singing voice and particularly his you know his guitar style the very percussive strumming yeah. guitar style was such a distinctive thing for the doobies and you know that's what that's what ted's really about is like just saying i got to work with these amazing mm -hmm. amazing artists and want to make sure what they did gets preserved properly mm -hmm. to really understand how great they were um, working with in the studio and to write these songs and to perform so well yeah, I could understand that. In talking with him, I don't know if you were a fan of every little thing that he ever worked on, but was there a story or a a section of his career that you found surprisingly more enjoyable than you expected? You know? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there were for me there were huge blank spots because he had such a diverse and long career. I mean, I think mm -hmm. when I worked on the Van Halen book, and from what I had you know, grown up learning along the way, um, you know, I knew he had produced Little Feet, but I, I had never listened to um, mm -hmm. and Shoes front to back. Mm -hmm. I probably had heard that he had produced Carly Simon, but I never had heard any of the stuff he had done with Carly Simon. So there were huge 
I mean, that's just two examples. There were huge blank spots for me. And in fact, that was one of the challenges for me in writing this book was that with the Van Halen story, I, I knew the, the outlines of the story very well. And then it was a matter of just kind of filling in the blanks of things that I didn't know or kind of learning about things in their past from their very beginnings that I might not have known. But I sort of I had a good handle on Van Halen, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of the stuff with with Ted's career, you know, I had never again, I'd never listened to the Carly Simon, uh, another passenger record, which uh, which was. A, a very important record for Ted's career, in mm-hmm. part because the 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 guests on it were just unbelievable. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at the you know, from Linda Ronstadt to the Eagles to Dr. John, it was just an incredible collaborative effort by all these people in LA at the time working on this record. And so, I had to get up to speed on this stuff and listen to these yeah. songs and really go back and talk to Ted about. Wait a minute, this person played a uh, saxophone solo. I don't recognize this name, and he would tell mm-hmm. me, "Oh, you know, this person is uh, a jazz player I liked when I was a kid." Um, wow. you know, and so sort of to, for me to have to familiarize myself with all of those individuals mm-hmm. and get uh, familiar with that and be able to write the book, that took a lot of a lot of time. And was uh, so there was plenty of blind spots. And for me, a lot of things that I didn't know, I mean, tons of things, tons. Yeah. OK, so you've written these two books. You're basically the foremost authority on at least the if not the big. Be- at least the beginning of the Van Halen story, you know, their early days, you're the foremost authority on all that. And now Ted Templeman, do you have a third book in mind? You know, I, I probably would do a book. I say probably because all I'm doing right now is homeschooling my kids and right. <laughs> like everything's like shelved. Right. You know, I would love to do a book on, on Van Halen's breakup uh-huh. and then reformation with Sammy Hagar at some point. I mean, that's definitely one book I could see doing, you know, but there are other, I have, I have plenty of other, ideas I could see I could see doing so I don't have a clearly formulated next book idea in part because I had to sort of work on a book proposal over the last you know I sort of had something that was kind of like you know going to uh, start kicking around and now everything's sort of gotten sidelined but you know yeah I think I you know and to tell you the truth that's that is in some ways to um, fulfill my own intellectual curiosity about it so that's that's the thing about the van halen book i wrote was in part because i wanted to know answer these questions it would be the same thing if i was to sort of look at that whole period of 1984 1985 to do a book on something like that it would be to put it together for myself in a way that makes sense whereas as a kid when i was living through it like everybody else opening rolling stone you got the news three weeks late four weeks late Mm -hmm. and it was always sort of like all these Mm -hmm. you don't kind of quite know and so it might be um for me sort of help um assemble the puzzle pieces of my own brain that's what really i did with van halen rising was my own things didn't make sense when i would think about their beginnings yeah we're uh, i think a lot of us musos we want to be able to connect those dots we need like you were mentioning you know I don't recognize this name who played saxophone on this album. We're the kind of people who get really obsessed about that. And we love to know that that person did this other thing that we also like. And so that, that curiosity, that's what sparked me doing this. I mean, just wanting to hear the real stories behind the music that I like and hopefully other people appreciate it too, obviously with the success of your first book and now this one too, there's a group of people out there who care about the same thing you do and they're, they love what you're doing with it. So Okay, let's talk about Van Halen Rising and get into the debut album. According to your book, I wrote down some some stats here. It was recorded in 15 days, cost $54,000 to make. It was recorded at Sunset Sound Recorders between September and October of 1977. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The uh, It's gone on to sell 10 million copies. That's over the long haul. I think in the first 
when it first came out, it was a big deal. It probably sold closer to like two, I think. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. It ultimately reached uh, number 19, a high of 19 on the charts. Uh, I'm going to approach this conversation with you as if my listeners have either not read the book or have not heard all the other interviews you've done with the sure. DJs of the world. So can you summarize as quickly as you want the relationship between Van Halen and Kiss, specifically Gene Simmons? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, so first thing I would say is that Van Halen, when they were playing clubs and backyard parties in Los Angeles in 75, 74, 76, they would play Kiss songs. Mm. You know, I don't. They were certainly not up on the top. Uh, Kiss was not the sort of the top influence on Van Halen by any stretch of the imagination. But there was a familiarity, obviously, of the songs. You know, Kiss was huge, and you played Kiss songs if we were a cover band. So the the story goes that in the late summer of 1976, Gene Simmons is living at the Sunset Marquee in Hollywood. And he meets a couple of the girls from The Runaways. I actually heard this mm. from Jackie Fox herself. Jackie told me that actually how they met was that she and Lita snuck, I believe, onto a soundstage in Hollywood where, where I can't remember what the television show they were doing, but Kiss was doing a TV show. Mm. And they snuck in there. Jackie told me they walk, were walking around and they saw... They saw their names on the door and it was their real name, you know, whatever. It was like mm -hmm. their real, mm -hmm. their real names. And, and, and sort of it said, I, when Jackie told me, she said, you know what? So when I saw their real names and then she eventually saw them without makeup, met those guys. She's like, it sort of demystified the whole thing for me. It was like, they were like, yeah. oh, they're like me. There's these Jewish guys from New York. You know, like, they're just like me. You know, she's like, basically, they're like, you know, these like, you know, they if somehow it made them, they it sort of diffused the rock star thing in some ways for her where she didn't feel in intimidated or whatever so she just you know talked to those guys and met them and then eventually mm -hmm. what ended up happening was that gene called up jackie and lita again i don't know if this was like three you know three months later mm -hmm. or six months later or three weeks later but eventually got a hold of them and said hey i'm looking for some bands to sign do you know any bands and she told me that they used to go sit by the pool lita and and uh, i think paul stanley was probably there too gene mm -hmm. lita and jackie fox and drink drinks you know sit mm -hmm. drinks and she would talk to to Gene and Lita would talk to Gene about these bands. And there was a band called The Boys, which was George Lynch's band, later of Dokken. And there was also this band Van Halen. There were maybe one or two other bands, but she she particularly really wanted Gene to check out Van Halen. And so Lita and Jackie eventually got Gene and Paul to go down to a club called Gazari's on the Sunset Strip which was a place where um, bands that played largely covers would play. And they saw this band called The Boys. This was George Lynch's band because mm -hmm. that was the first band that she wanted them to see. And uh, about a week later, what happened was that Gene was coming back for a second look at The Boys and Van Halen was on the was on the um, the billing. From mm -hmm. when I remember what, what Jackie told me was that that Gene had sort of decided that he wanted to sign The Boys. He's like, oh, yeah, you were right. This is a good band. Hadn't hadn't seen or Van Halen, he kind of hadn't gotten to Van Halen because I think the, the band that he saw first, one of the two that Jackie and Lita suggested, he liked. He liked the boys. But when he saw Van Halen playing with the boys, he was much more impressed with Van Halen and ended up signing them to a production deal of some sort. It's sort of always been kind of fuzzy what that meant, but it was some sort of exclusive deal like I will try to get you a record deal. And if I do, I'll be, you know, I'll be your guy, basically. Right. You'll, be, you'll be in con under contract to me. So Gene in October 1976, took the Van Halen band 
including the brothers, of course, who had, as far as I know, had never been on an airplane. I don't know if Michael Anthony had been on an airplane by then. Um, I know Roth had gone to Fiji or something as a kid and mm-hmm. probably traveled a bit, but those the guys in the band had never had never flown on an airplane before, mm-hmm. as far as mm-hmm. I know. Took them to New York, took them to SIR Studios, and had them audition for Bill Coin, who was Kiss's manager. They did it on uh, Kiss's equipment, of all things. So Kiss was getting mm-hmm. ready to go on the road, and they actually, Gene wanted them to play for Bill Coin. And they played on Kiss's equipment. Eddie Van Halen later on has talked about the fact that it didn't feel very comfortable with him. Obviously, he was playing through someone else's equipment. His brother was playing on Peter Chris's drum set. So it was all this sort of weird, you know, uh, fish out of water thing. They're in New York. There's no mm-hmm. crowd. It's just just Kiss's manager standing there and they're trying to audition kind of cold for Bill Coin. Mm-hmm. Now, at that same time when that was going on, Gene also had taken them into Electric Lady Studios, Jimi Hendrix's old studio, to record a demo, which they did, like an 11-song demo. So that was Gene's, you know, Gene was like, okay, we're going to go in the studio, we're going to write that, you know, get the songs down. And mm-hmm. as soon as Bill Coyne says yes, kind of basically signs off on this, gives the green light, we're going we're gonna to go forward with this Van Halen band thing with you guys mm-hmm. making a record. Well, Bill Coyne didn't like Van Halen and actually mm-hmm. sold, told... Uh, the guys to the face that he wasn't crazy about the band in general. So some of the songs were okay, but it, particularly he singled out in his assessment to those guys' mm-hmm. faces that he didn't like Dave as a singer. It's like, mm-hmm. ah, you know, I yeah. really think you're good. And uh, sent those guys back to, to uh, LA with a tail between their legs. And so that was the end. Gene, to his credit, tore up the contract. Um, and so that was the, that was basically the big episode there of the Gene Simmons kiss thing. Mm-hmm. There's more to it. That's that's the big chapter. Okay, okay. Now, my understanding, if I parsed everything correctly from reading the book, Ted, did, I don't, I didn't get the impression that Ted had heard Gene's demos, and that's what turned him on to wanting to produce Van Halen. It was that he saw them live and was turned on by them live. Was that so, more the order? Right. And so the 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 story goes that is that Van Halen comes back to Los Angeles and has this demo that is actually, you know, been professionally recorded. Dave Whitman, who actually did Foreigner, worked on the Foreigner records and is a very, very talented engineer, was the guy who engineered it for Gene. So it was a very, you know, very professionally well done thing. Those guys didn't really know what to do. Mm-hmm. They're trying to find another, you know, they're still trying to find a record deal, but they've they've actually now been turned down by, in theory, you know, by Kiss's manager, that Gene Simmons, who is an advocate for them, couldn't get them a record deal, which is, if you think about it, is a, not a great endorsement for your band. If, they, if right. the guy at the time who was one of the biggest rock stars in the world can't get you a record deal, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's really a black mark against you. Mm-hmm. So what ended up happening was they, uh, the guys in Van Halen met a gentleman by the name of Marshall Burrell. He is uh, Milton Burrell's nephew, and probably yep. many people remember him because he managed Rat in Rat. the uh, early. He's right. And That's how Milton Burrell was on the Round and Round video. Correct. Exactly. Correct. Yes. And so yes. um, Milton, uh, Milton, Marshall, Marshall <laughs> right. Burrell uh, was was booking the Whiskey a Go Go at the time, and he met the guys in Van Halen because they had gotten the a gig at the Whiskey, which was the the highest profile rock club at the one of the highest profile rock clubs in Hollywood at the time. And so when, when Marshall met those guys, now Marshall had been an agent for uh, William Morris and had, had worked with, uh, you know, had booked the beach boys and some other groups. I mean, he'd been, you know, he'd been in the industry for a while and had been around some very talented bands. And so when Marshall heard Van Halen and saw them, he goes, wow, you guys are good. He's like, you don't have a rec, you know, you have a manager and they're like, no, and you'd have a record deal. No. And Marshall's like, well, I, do you want me to make some phone calls? And from what Marshall told me, those guys were like, bah, 
we've heard like basically we've heard this mm -hmm. all before this is a bunch of just you whatever you want man right you know we don't care like because we know it's not going to come to anything there's been so many people and they were pretty obviously demoralized by the gene thing but what had happened was that marshall burl had met ted templeman that ted templeman was now a uh a house producer warner brothers a vice president of warner brothers marshall and ted knew each other from the 60s ted was in harper's bazaar marshall was a booking agent so there was some work between harper's bazaar and marshall getting them on certain billings concert billings and ted and marshall had met each other and so ted gets a call from marshall marshall says hey you know i met this band van halen i think you should come check them out ted i think you'll like them they do harmonies and they have some stuff that you know maybe you might be uh you know, a keen on if you hear this band and and as Ted said it to me, you know, he he never at that point, he wasn't out on the street as an AR guy looking for bands. That was sort of, you know, way he had done that at the very beginning of his career in, in the early 70s, 71. He had done that a little bit. But um at this point he was, you know, his days were filled with producing records and going to meetings and things. And so he said he never saw unsigned bands and he almost never paid any attention to that stuff. But he said that he trusted Marshall because he knew Marshall had uh, an ear for music because Marshall was a guy who had been in the industry and knew him for a while. So he said, OK, look, if Marshall thinks these guys are good, what the hell? I'll go down and check them out. And so Marshall went, set Ted up to go see those guys at the Starwood in Hollywood in February 77. Ted loved them, got um, got them a deal and the rest is history. Nice. OK. OK, I want to read some reviews, but I might save them for a little bit later and sprinkle them in as we talk about the uh about the individual songs. Let's start with track one, obviously, Running With The Devil. This reached, I believe, number 84 on the top 100. Um, one thing that I thought was really interesting. Now, did Mike, uh, Michael Anthony, did he, of everybody that you quoted in your book, it sounded like his quotes were direct. Did you actually talk to him for the book? Correct. He was the one, yeah, he was the one guy out of the um, okay. of the original members of Van Halen who I spoke to. So I actually got to talk to him for about an hour on the phone. He was great. Yeah, he, so he, he um, you know, he filled in some blanks for me. But, you know, the thing about all of those guys, even though um, Dave and Ed uh, passed on talking to me about the book, is that the thing you have going for you when you're looking at a band like Van Halen is obviously they've done a lot of interviews over the years. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of raw, you know, there's a lot of raw material out there, radio interviews, newspaper interviews, magazine interviews. Right. So there wasn't any sort of shortage of material to be able to call together to work on putting the book together. You know, that said, of course, I would have loved to have talked to them. There's questions only they could, you know, in theory, only they can answer that I had. But yeah, Mike was great. He was, he was very eager to talk and was just, yeah, just an awesome guy. 
Well, you probably got the right guy because Eddie and Alex hardly ever do interviews and David hardly ever does an interview that's very informative. And so you got the right guy who's probably the most straight shooter of everybody. Oh, you know? definitely. He was. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah. There's very willing to answer questions. I mean, he was great. Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, I feel like this song introduces all the aspects of the band that you're going to be getting uh, right out of the gate. And you you mentioned this in your book. The three hallmarks of a Van ha- of Van Halen are Eddie's guitar playing, David's swagger, and Michael's backing vocals. Sure. And I feel like the, Michael's backing vocals are the thing that people maybe take for granted in that equation sometimes. Yes, they're aware of them and they like them, but all eyes are usually on those other two guys. And it's really Michael's vocals that make so much of this stuff even more special. So one quote, though, I thought was interesting is that you mentioned in your book that Mike was a little skeptical of his own bass playing on this album. And it's interesting to me that the album begins with his thumping, kind of scary what's happening bass Mm -hmm. riffs out of the gate Mm -hmm. before it announces everybody else. Sure. My understanding from your book is that the first verse of this song was a combination of two different takes. Right. Every To me, it, Running with the Devil allows everyone to shine and it is a great encapsulation of this is what this band is all about. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, I'll start with the, the, the mic part of the question, which is that the way that, I, you know, I, I may have talked about it in, in passing with Mike on the phone, but he's talked about it in a number of interviews is that, you know, it was it was his first time. And like, all those guys had been in the studio before. But, you know, for Mike, it was a situation where he felt that Ted spent a lot of time working with Dave, a lot of time and focused more on Ed than on Mike. And he, he wishes in retrospect that he could have been kind of, quote unquote, coached up by Ted a little bit more just because there's things like he said, like, you know, the way he maybe he played some parts, he maybe could have played them cleaner or something like that. If he had, he had over time, he sort of learned, you know, maybe a technique that would have sound better in the studio versus live, these types of things. But as Ted uh, talks about in the, uh, the autobiography and probably said to me when I did Van Halen rising well, but um, in his new book, he said to me many times, he's like, yeah, I know I feel badly about that when I read that. But his thing was that Mike was great. He was like, he nailed his parts. He sang great. He's like, you know, I didn't need to, he said, I didn't need to worry about Mike. You know, I think, I think what he was trying to say is there were other things that he was um, trying to, you know, maybe manage more closely in terms of the Van Halen band. Whereas with Mike, he just felt like, okay, this guy's got this. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about this. This is going to be fine. It's going to be good. And so that was kind of where Ted said, you know, he wished in, in retrospect that he had sort of maybe had spent more time with Mike just so Mike would have felt more supported. But he always thought that Mike was just an amazing, mm-hmm. um, at least solid guy yeah. all around where he would just come in, nail his parts, sing these parts, and, you know, was just the absolute essential to the yeah. band's sound. Yeah. One thing, it was interesting, I, I, uh, the, the Mike said that the guys were call would call him Cannon Mouth because his vocals were he would when when singing vocals he would everybody else would be right around the microphone and he'd be on the other side of the room yeah because he didn't need to be that close or else he would have blown right. everything up right right um, and when Ted would and Ted would actually sing with those guys in the studio not on everything but on stuff on Van Halen Van Halen one I think for sure on Diver Down as well mm-hmm. Ted sang some stuff is that. What what Ted would do is he would he would actually double Ed's part like Mike's was you know they would just basically to, to boost up Ed's voice to make and make it sound bigger Ted would sing the same part that Ed would sing and then they would Don Landy would mix the two those two vocals together along with with Mike's vocals well okay so I was I was curious about something do you know 
whether this the harmonizing Mike's backing vocals were they a hallmark of the band on the house party circuit way back when and that's partly what got them signed or do you think Ted that was something that Ted really locked into and sort of pulled out of them yeah I mean I think if you listen to the Gene Simmons demo it's pretty evident that Ted did a lot of work with those guys working on uh, their harmonies. And again, I'm not saying they didn't do harmony things. Right. They did, you know, they did an acapella of happy trails for instance. So they, they, they did it and could do it. But I think Ted really wanted to emphasize and put a spotlight on that part of their sound. One thing that Ted said to me, which I thought was really, really interesting was he said, you know, with, with Van Halen, I wanted them to be, even though there were some really heavy, dark stuff, I wanted them overall to be sort of a an upbeat, happy sounding band uh-huh. you know uh-huh. he he talked a lot about to me about you know there was a lot of stuff on the on the quote-unquote heavy metal circuit in the 70s that was very dark and kind of dirgy so like sabbath and deep uh-huh. purple and he just thought you know these guys are not like that they have a good sense of humor there's much more of a youthful appeal to these guys where they're just about having a good time in a lot of ways their vibe was about a good time vibe and so right. one of the things that was really interesting to me is he said that when i heard mike and Ed, in particular, of course, Mike's voice kind of dominates the background vocals. He said, it sounded like the Beach Boys to me. And mm-hmm. He said, I thought this was the thing that was really made them youthful, that they had mm-hmm. this sort of a Beach Boys-y sort of type of sound. So you had these incredibly heavy riffs with this great singer who's just kind of screaming and, and yelping over this stuff that really is distinctive. Then you have these harmonies that are so pop harmonies that would go there too so that was sort of ted's idea to sort of meld pop with heavy metal again i'm not saying he was the only you know obviously the band was doing that in some ways but he that was his his thinking as a producer he wanted to really emphasize that and and sort of play that stuff up as we talked about be the lighting man who puts the spotlight on these parts of the band's uh, components right okay all right yeah i mean it's a it's a great track i it's um there are others that are my when i get to it you tell me which song on this album is your favorite okay sure Uh, All right, track two, Eruption, probably the most famous guitar solo ever put on an album anyway. Another part of your book that I found interesting was that it was, it hadn't been uh, the whole like tapping that Eddie does on the sure. when he plays and the whammy bar stuff and stuff. That was relatively new. He had been learning that, from my understanding, as Rick Derringer and Canned Heat specifically. These were not tricks that had been in his arsenal for years and years and years. So that that solo wouldn't be what it is without it. And I guess it was kind of an afterthought too, right? He was just sort of messing around the studio. Ted thought it sounded good. Let's put it down, right? Sure, yeah. I want to give uh, give credit to, uh, you know, I interviewed a lot of really 
smart, successful people who maybe on first glance from people looking at their name wouldn't have any wouldn't ever associate them with Van Halen. But um, there was a there's a gentleman by the name of Carl Hassis who was one of the guitar players for Dread Zeppelin. Mm. And Carl mm-hmm. was a guy who was playing in cover bands in 1976, 75, and actually played with Van Halen at a very some early some of those early sort of very primitive concert gigs in these sort of mm-hmm. offbeat type of venues in the middle of L.A. suburbia. And Carl watched Van Halen closely and he would go to these gigs and watch them. And he talked about to me the fact that basically that stuff all kind of came together at the very end with Ed. You know, you know, mm-hmm. he sort of could have put that on my radar. He's like, and I, I knew that intuitively because you could listen to bootlegs and sort of understand that Eddie's the whammy bar stuff kind of came later that he was playing Gibson guitars that didn't have a tremolo bar on them in 75. And there was, you know, it was those pieces were all there in my head, but he sort of made it very concrete. He said, look, all that stuff sort of landed together at the same time. And he's, he was dead right. I think I quoted him in the book, actually. And he said the, the record deal came along at the exact right time to capture that uh, portion of Ed's style. Mm-hmm. That, you know, even, mm-hmm. even the Gene Simmons, Ed's guitarist playing style had evolved even between October of 1976 and the um, basically the Oct- a year later, it had evolved where there was a lot more of that pyrotechnic stuff that we associate with the Eddie Van Halen guitar style. The mm-hmm. tapping, the whammy bar, the, the 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 harmonics, these types of pyrotechnics, they were all um, were all there for that you know that sort of moment in time. And then the mm-hmm. the other thing about the um, the afterthought, yeah, Ted Ted in his autobiography tells a very very vivid detail. It's one of his most I think it's one of the stories that I loved hearing him tell the most to all because he had such distinct memories of it as one of these you know like people have those like lightning bolt from the blue right. type of moments in their life mm-hmm. that they remember. You know, they scored a touchdown in the football game when they were in high school or whatever it is, you know, right. the, birth, the birth of your first child or all these different things you sort of remember. And for him walking around the studio and then his ears perking up in between, you know, they weren't recording within between takes. He's walking around, sense of sound. And he hears this thing. And he's like, what, what, what is this? Yeah. He walks in the studio and sort of goes up to Ed and goes, what's this? Oh, it's just something I warm up on, man. You know, like it's, mm-hmm. it's just something I do. Like I, I play this, I warm up on it and then I just, I'm just warming up and I play this at our concerts. It's just a little thing I do. You know, so Dave can go get a drink of beer, you know, have a beer and like the guys can towel off or something. And he's like, roll tape, you know, let's yeah. record this. And he recorded it. So, yes, it was one of the last it was the second to last or the last thing they recorded for Van Halen's debut record. And it was not in the plan at all, not in yeah. Ted's plan to put on the record. It was just he heard it that very day. They recorded it. And then it was on the record. That's crazy. And it changed everything. And I think you mentioned that Eddie doesn't like it. When he listens to it, all he hears are his mistakes. Is that right? Yeah, Ted. Ted uh, has told that story to me a number of times that he just like that. You know that at, at, even like he's like you know three years later they'd be in the studio. It's just so hilarious to think about this, right? Because it's sort of the, the, like anyone else, you lose perspective on your own ability, your own performance. Sure. That that that's why you need a producer. That you know he'd say to him, "Oh man, I wish you would let." Ed would say to Ted, "I wish you would let me do it again one more time, man. I could have done it better." Like I, I like mm-hmm. there's a I missed a note in there, or I did something wrong, and like Ted was just like you know he said he was just like sort of chuckled to himself because I think it's fine, you know I think I think it was good. Right. Great. right. Okay. Yeah. It, I mean, it's it changed everything that that track and that solo. Track three, their cover of the Kinks. You really got me.
I mean, it's not often that covers eclipse originals, but I think in this case you could make an argument for that. It reached number 36. It was recorded, I believe, on the second day that they were even all together. And it was, um, this I believe was also more of an afterthought because Ted, I guess, didn't hear a pop single. And so he, this was a cover they were performing in bars and he thought, let's put it on the album. We need it just in case. Right. Uh, Done in two takes. And it kind of reinvented heavy metal, if I'm quoting you correctly. One thing I think that's really interesting about this is, and everybody knows, is, you know, when when Eddie plays that opening riff, he adds like a little riff to it, you know, a little one more scratch of the of the strings that the that the kinks didn't do. Yeah. Is there a you know, what's the uh, how do they what's the story behind that? Do I have that right? Is there anything to add to this? Yeah, I mean, I think that I would I would emphasize the thinking that Ted had there yeah. was that in doing that song was that he was um, living with the legacy of Montrose mm. in his head, which was that Montrose to him had been, I don't want to say a perfect rock record, but it had been a record that Ted was enormously proud of. And he, he really thought it was going to be a smash. And the guys in Montrose thought it was going to be a smash. And he thought he had really gotten it right. But in the months that, followed its release one thing that ted recognized was that he did not have a song on the montrose record that was was enough of a had enough of a pop appeal to it mm-hmm. you know it just was so at the time when the montrose record came out am radio was really important and there wasn't a song that was well really well suited to am radio so while montrose got some airplay on what was called underground fm at the time so they played space station number five and and you know uh, rock candy on these mm-hmm. fm stations there wasn't a song that was well suited to radio so ted always swore that if he ever made he produced a group a similar type of group to montrose or sort of a, a hard rock quartet this type of thing that he was going to make sure that there was a song that would be an easy fit for radio and that was why he pushed for you really got me to be on the album again. So you, as you point out, the band was already doing it. It wasn't that Ted sort of came to them and said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to record the song. And they're like, we okay. don't know the song, but they had already okay. been, they've been doing it for years. But he said, this is the one we're going to do because he, he felt like he just wanted to make sure there was something that radio programmers were going to go. Oh yeah. The kinks, you really got yeah. me. This is, this yeah. is already a, a hit song and we can, we can go with this. And it, it, it worked because it actually, as you said, got to 36 on the chart, which was enough to get Van Halen on the radar of people in the industry. And that's what yeah. you need is a, a young band, something that's going to get people um, at that time to uh, in radio to think, oh, yeah, there's, there's talent here. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. I mean, it's one of the probably the best, one of the better covers that's ever been done. It reinvents the song. It uh, takes it to a whole new level. Everything about it is perfect. So track four, Ain't Talking About Love. This might be my favorite. It's either this one or another one we're going to talk about in in a minute.
This was also recorded on that second day. Two chords. It's a masterpiece. It's a favorite of Ted's. Something I want to mention, I had forgotten, this was in my notes and I skipped over it on accident. You mentioned about David's vocal issues. For anyone who doesn't know, he, you know, a lot of people were skeptical of David as a front man because he doesn't have a great voice. And they thought he should be replaced. And Ted thought he should be replaced with, Ted, with Sammy Hagar. And uh, wanted Sammy to kind of replace Dave in the beginning. But Dave went and took vocal lessons. And uh, thank God they left, they let it, left it alone. Because yeah. he's probably the, I mean, we all know this, he's not a great singer, but that doesn't mean he's not maybe the greatest front man ever. One of them, top five probably. So it all works out and it comes to fruition on a song like this, I think, you know? He's yeah, I mean, that's one of the things in Ted's new book that he uh, underscores mightily. And he, you know, he had said this in Van Halen Rising too, I think, but I think really wanted to put a fine point on it just to say if I had replaced Sammy, if I had replaced Dave with Sammy Hagar in 1977, you know, if I'd really pushed forward on this idea that he was mulling over, he said it would have been the biggest mistake in rock history. Yeah. You know, Dave won him over. I think that was the thing was like, you know, you know whatever vocal limitations were there, Dave worked hard and, and had written some great lyrics and Ted recognized the sense of humor, the style, the, 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 the appeal as a front man, all those things that were kind of were, you know, all pluses in Dave's ledger there that maybe mm -hmm. that out that outweighed the, the vocal issues that were there yeah and so yeah um ain't talking about love is actually a, a song that is always humorous when i ever hear it because I, I i know from researching the book and writing the book that and people i think knew it even before that it just kind of now really is the fine point and every time i hear it is the the fact that it was meant to be mocking punk rock that it was mm. it was you know that the time that van halen was gigging in 1977 on the Sunset Strip playing the whiskey, there were, there was sort of the rise of LA punk. So, and also the Ramones and Blondie and a lot of these new wave slash punk groups were coming through Hollywood at the time. And Van Halen was actually playing, you know, basically the next night after Devo or something like that. And so they were rehearsing and some, someone in the room, I don't know, one of the guys in the band said, punk does three chords, we should do a two chord song. And actually, Ain't Talk About Love is largely two songs. It's A minor to G over and over uh -huh. again. And so that was the, you know, sort of this, they have this absolute, uh, monster van halen classic one of the best songs they ever did be yeah. a song that was actually made to be making fun of punk rock is kind of remarkable but yeah also ted templeman's favorite van halen song mm. i was going to ask you about punk rock and when we got to atomic punk so i'll save some of my questions relating to that till we get to that song but one thing i think is kind of interesting is that first of all i think alex does a really i love the drumming in this one and i find it in getting ready to talk to you i realized as great a drummer as Alex is, he's probably the one who gets the least attention in this band. It's He's kind of like the Alex Lifeson of Van Halen. Alex is one of the greatest guitarists ever, but because he's surrounded by Neil and Getty, who right. are the best at their instruments, right. he gets lost in the shuffle. And I yeah. feel like that's kind of what happens to Alex here. Eddie's well, the greatest. Yeah. Mike has his vocal thing. Dave's the greatest frontman ever. Where does that leave Alex? You know? Yeah, I, I definitely think that, yeah, there's this sort of like you have the the uh, the attention sort of only can like go on to so many people in a band in some ways. I mean, even like look at like the same thing with Zeppelin. I mean, like, you know, it's like John Paul Jones, right? It's the same right. type of thing where it's like incredible musician. We all know he wrote most of Into the Outdoor and all this stuff and was just an essential part of their sound. And yet, yeah, he doesn't get the, he obviously doesn't get the love that those other guys get. Yeah, Alex is... Also, of course, the guy who was right there with Ed when all these songs were written. I mean, that's the thing is that Ed wrote the riffs and put the, put the pieces of the song together, the musical pieces together. But uh, Ted Templeman, 
really emphasized, especially in the Van Halen Rising book, and we, we probably touched on it a little bit in this new book, is that Alex was a, a really good arranger, that Alex mm-hmm. had a real talent for being able to go, you know, if we move this part here, make suggestions to Ted, and Ted would be like, that's a really good idea, actually. We should yeah. we should move this piece over here or swap these two these two um, verses around or whatever, the lyrics around. And, you know, so beyond his great drumming, uh, that uh, Ted really said that he had a real insight, especially with Ed's playing, kind of like could understand from being his brother, understood the 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 way to sort of uh, could uh, maybe an Eddie Van Halen song could be reassembled in a way that would make sense to both of them, uh, the brothers. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. If anything, I mean, first of all, Alex is a, one of the best drummers ever. But part of what makes Alex special is he enables Eddie to be the best Eddie can be, and the world needs that. You know. 100%. Uh, Okay, the next track, I'm the one. I like the song a lot. I feel like in some ways it gets a little lost in the shuffle because it's bookended by classics on either end, you know? But I think it's great. One thing I thought was really interesting in your book is that you mentioned that they it would have been called Show Your Love, but there was already a song called Feel Your Love tonight. And so they thought, well, we don't need two songs with your love in it. So we'll call it I'm the One. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably because they I've seen the uh, the scans of the tape boxes and they actually some you know they took like white out over the tape boxes and changed it. It was probably at the last at the last minute actually after the song was the album was done and they were putting together the song list. But uh, yeah, this is honestly this is probably my favorite song on Van yeah. Halen One, just because it it really for me as I talked about in Van Halen Rising, it's the link between the the brothers' early interest in what we would have called like you know boogie rock. Mm-hmm. Or blues, blues boogie rock of the early '70s bands like Cactus and, and Humble Pie and these other groups. It, it's the brothers took that and then really did something with it that sort of supercharged it in their own sort of way. And the other thing about the song that's really cool is there's two guitar solos. So you know you don't just get one; you get two Eddie Van Halen guitar solos on this this song as well. Just the other thing I'd point to about the song, which always was remarkable to me, even as a a young person, was the doo-wop breakdown in the middle of mm-hmm. it. That's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah, Ted, where that Ted, came Ted, from. I asked Ted about that, and he, you know, he says he wasn't 100 percent sure, but he was almost because that I think was part of the arrangement before Ted got on the scene or something mm. like that, mm. and that um, he was saying that um, you know it was that was Dave. I mean that was that was Dave's really Dave's um, idea to do that, and so that whole thing, which seems again, there's so many parts of Van Halen's debut record, and you could point to other bands as well, the same type of thing, whether it be you know Led Zeppelin or 
Guns N' Roses, you go through all the great the great de- debut albums in any genre where you, you can say there were things in there that in theory shouldn't work. Yeah. You think about a heavy metal, post hard rock heavy metal band doing a doo-wop breakdown and paper, you're like, mm, I don't think that sounds like a good idea, but it, it works <laughs> right. perfectly on that song. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, it's a classic tune, and I, I'm with you. Be- I think because it's almost a diamond in the rough, you know, you or sure. it's less obvious than some of the so many of the other songs on this album that it makes it stand out even more. I would agree with that. Okay, next up, Jamie's crying. My understanding, again, from your book is that Ted felt like they needed a second single, I believe. But then I don't know if I didn't see that this was even actually released. Was this technically or officially released as a single? Yeah, it came out. It was I believe it was the final single from my memory is fading on this, but I believe it was the fourth and final single from Van Halen or maybe it was ain't talking about love. But yeah, it was released as a single. There were four. I think it was Run With The Devil. You really got me. Uh, ain't talking about love, and then Jamie's crying are the four. Okay. four I think yeah, the four singles from the album. The riff sounds a lot like Christine sixteen. Absolutely. And David called this the cosmic cha cha, which is such a Dave thing to say about anything. I am curious. The intro to the song was sampled heavily for Tone Loke's Wild Thing. Yep. Do you happen to know? I, I meant to look and I forgot. Do, does Van Halen get a co-write on that song? And if they, you may not even know, but was there like a financial windfall because of the success of that song that they got you know, to benefit from? I I don't know off the top of my head. There was definitely okay. controversy when that happened. And I don't remember if it was Van Halen's lawyers or someone or, or somebody, you know, said there was definitely some sort of public comment about this. That was sort of the, you know, the, I don't want to say the, the infancy of sampling, but sort of as it just was starting to become more of a recognition by a lot of people that going, oh, right. there are actually, you know, there were actually songs being constructed out of other people's songs. Right. And I honestly don't know. I would be, I would be surprised if there wasn't some sort of, you know, financial agreement there. But I don't, I don't know for sure. So maybe one of your listeners, yeah, could mm. could uh, could okay. tell us. Yeah, obviously, yeah, it was. You know, we heard it. You know, all, uh-huh. all of us. You were, oh, I recognize that. Yeah, this song is, you know, it's basically about a young girl's regret, I believe, of a one-night stand. What's the story? Any stories you recall about Jamie's crying? 
No, I mean, I, I do know from from talking to Ted that Ted was, a, you know, it was one of these these lyrical ideas that Dave came up with that mm. Ted, you know, at first was like cocking his head like, oh, I don't know about this. I don't know if you know, should be singing about like, you know, basically like a like like basically like a, a teenage girl's lament about a one night stand mm. that, you know, again, it may not fit in the context of Van Halen. But he said that Dave, you know, knew just knew how to, to sell these things and had these brilliant ideas to come up with these things. And yeah, Ted will tell you that that was almost completely written in the studio, that they had mm. the riff. They basically had the groove, but it was just at the very beginning of the session, meaning when they first went in the studio, they were just scatting a vocal. There was no there was no lyric. There were no lyrics yeah. and it really wasn't a full melody written. But Dave wow. on the spot, um, when they started to work on it to finish it, came up with that stuff. And he in Ted's new book, one of the quotes that he says in there about Dave is something to the extent that there was, you know, there were very few people that were as good as working on the spot as Ted ever saw in the studio that he worked with, you know, again, with an incredible mm-hmm. array of, of incredible performers and talents that he said that Dave was incredible. Just, wow. Hey, Dave, you know, this isn't going to work. Change this. Or, hey, what do you think? Right. Can you write some stuff against this? And, you know, 15 minutes later, Dave would come back with some pretty damn good lyrics, you know, that you know, change amazing. it for here. Yeah, Dave was incredible on the spot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a classic. Uh, okay, next up, Atomic Punk. Um, I think for the same reasons that I was mentioning about I'm the One, Atomic Punk might be my favorite song just because again it's not one of the more overplayed or anything like that I love the whammy bar sound on here. At least that's what I, I, it feels like I'm not a musician or especially not a guitarist, but I'm imagining Eddie, you know, flipping that switch, whatever it is that's happening. It's not the whammy bar, but the, what's the, you know what I'm talking? Like it makes the phaser, makes that scratching noise or whatever. And I'm imagining Alex, you know, working the cymbal while he's doing that. I love that dynamic in there. Dave mentioned that this was, his him being an alpha male like he's uh, he wants to you guys might be the punks but i'm the leader of the pack here and the, and i'll prove it to you yeah it's it's the, again the lyric is so it's so dave in some ways it's sort yeah. of yeah it's sort of it uh, just uh, like planting the flag and we're here and we we are uh not going to go away and that's one of the things wow. that's really kind of cool about the song too about the way uh not just the lyric but the the approach as you mentioned about eddie's guitar i always when i always listen to it I always thought it was, whether it was conscious or unconscious, 
or it just worked out that way. That the, the, the way that Ed Van Halen did that was that he took the palm of his hand and rubbed it, and I'll do it in the microphone here. He sort of rubbed it against the strings there and had the phase oh. run. So he made that like said, uh, squishing. Yeah. And I always thought that was almost like a, you know, again, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but a, like a punk rock thing, like, you know what, I don't even need to use my fingers to yeah. you know, or like pick. I just use my hand. I just like can make this incredible, incredible riff with my, just the palm of my hand. That's punk yeah. rock there. And so um, the time that they spent on the Sunset Strip was, yeah, was, was with, with playing with punk bands was, I think, pretty influential on their, um, their catalog. There's another song called uh, Lost of Control, which they did in 1980 for uh, Women and Children First, which is another song that was was a, a kind of a punk rock parody song that played very, very fast. And it, they wrote it in 1977 and eventually it ended up on Women and Children First. But um, yeah, I think, think it generated, I think those guys were probably weirded out a little bit by the things they saw in Hollywood and would come back to Pasadena and write songs and just sort of, you know, talk right. about, you see this guy wearing the, you know, this girl wearing a trash bag with the, you know, with the duct tape around her head. I mean, literally stuff like that. I think that was, yeah. I'm sure that was grist for their mill. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was recorded on the very first day right of recordings the first thing they did for this album was this song was yeah. My yeah yeah that's, that seems if my, my memory serves me yeah it's uh you know they were very prepared i mean that's the other thing too that uh you want to give um, credit to those guys and credit to templeman was that you know it was never a situation on the especially the, well, the first five van halen records for sure there was never a situation where oh well we're just going to go in the studio and just you know find the songs where other you know fleetwood mac and some of these other groups with bigger budgets and longer timelines would just you know, sort of move in the studio and li live there for yeah. months right and just do this yeah. stuff it was they rehearsed in the basement in pasadena of ross house they were dedicated to doing that and so you know ted ted's plan for those guys was he didn't want to put those guys in a big debt from a big uh, bill for making an album i think the album cost like you mentioned fifty thousand dollars which is mm -hmm. extremely was extremely cheap for the time and yeah. but they were so well rehearsed that they only needed you know, two or three takes to get the basic tracks down. Again, maybe you patch up Dave's vocal, or maybe there's an overdub you need to make, or maybe, you know, who knows, Ed made a mistake and they have to do a punch in and fix a, fix a bad note here or there. Mm -hmm. But um, for the most part, those songs were done, all four guys in the room, Dave in a vocal yeah. booth in Sunset Sound, the other three guys in the room, the big room there at Sunset Sound, and they were recorded. And so they were, they were so well rehearsed that they didn't need to, they didn't need to spend an enormous amount of time um, slogging through the songs. The, again, yeah. the exception of the rule there was being Jamie's crying, which was I'm going to guess when Ted heard it and figured it was almost done. They had some time. They were like, "Okay, we got a couple of days. Let's see if we can finish this off and, and put yeah. it on the record." Yeah, excellent. All right, next up is "Feel Your Love Tonight," uh, recorded on the second day.
both Dave and Al both commented on how this the the theme of this song is just going out and having a good time. You quoted Al, Alex, I should say, jump in your car, pick up your your girl, and you're gonna have a good time. And David <laughs> said kind of the same thing. It's it's a theme song for like a Friday or a Saturday night out on the town. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, the thing I really I really love about this song is the you know the lyrics are so evocative. They're, they're, you know, it's not as if Roth wrote poetry. It's not like you know he was, you know, he wasn't a guy who was going to sort of impress you with his his gigantic vocabulary or the sort of you know could us paint these very very you know wild scenes out of all this very dense prose type of thing. It was just you know very straightforward and sort of very so relatable. I think he just really had this this knack for coming up with these again this idea of like feel your love tonight. Everybody sort of can understand what that is, and yet it's yeah. it's completely. G-rated in some ways, right? Yeah, it's right. Sort of, it's that was the brilliant of, uh, of Dave. And the other thing too, and there's interesting, is that when you look at the multi-track, um, the tape boxes, I believe this is one of the songs that had a tambourine track on it and a hand clap track. And the hand clapping is there, but the tambourine um, was mixed down, and that that is a uh, kind of a Ted Templeman signature was was percussion. Ted loved mm. Ted, as he calls himself in, the, in uh, his biography, uh, a percussion freak. And so, you know, he wasn't going to have congas or timbales on a Van Halen song, but, you know, he, I think he couldn't help himself to have a, a, a tambourine in there. And even though you can't really hear it, yeah. it's, it's there, right? It's it's there, but it's that sort of like hand clapping all, you know, kind Love of standing it. around. Yeah. Singing along to this great, this great catchy chorus. That's classic. Right on. Okay. I will, uh, I feel like, well, I'll save these comments for a little bit later when we get to another song. But next up is Little Dreamer. Going back to Alex, I thought it was interesting. First of all, I like this song a lot, but I thought it was, I really like the ooze in the chorus. I think it sets a nice kind of moody tone. I thought it was interesting that Alex had wished that this album was even harder. Did, was there, was he speaking just for himself? Do you know if the guys felt like 
uh, Ted kind of softened them up, pushed them out a little bit at all with the production? You know, I've I've read again. I've never had a conversation with Alex Van Halen in my life to ask him this. That would be an interesting thing. One of the things I would have wanted to ask him. The the thing that I know from the, the interviews I've read from Alex, he would occasionally talk about how he had wished the first Van Halen record and the second Van Halen record it sounded more like maybe like a darker and heavier like a Led Zeppelin I'm not saying he, then it should have been like you know like a Led Zeppelin clone sound but like I think Alex wanted things to be the drum sound to be more thumping and sort of to be more more um in that in that sort of vein and so you know the way those that stuff came off that was part of I, I, I guess what what Alex had had envisioned in his mind but never really came to pass now that that said and this is part of obviously the dynamic between a band and a producer, especially when you're a young band. That Ted would always ask those guys after they heard the mix, because he would he would he would mix with Don Landy on they would mix on their own, and then they would bring the, bring their acts in. This is all the you know the doobies whoever they worked with they would and they play the mixes and they'd say, does anyone not like something? And occasionally people might say, you know, I I don't like my bass sound on this track or whatever. But he said those guys never said anything like you know yeah. it's fine. You know, and part of it is obviously Ted was the guy with the track record or probably a platinum sure. hits. I want to be like the new guy who's like stands up and be like, oh, by the way, yeah, you know, you guys did a bad job, right? I didn't like right. this, but you know, I, but yeah, I've heard him talk about that before, and I don't know how impassioned he feels about that, but yeah, that's been a comment I've read from him in a couple of interviews. Okay, something else that I think it kind of speaks to what you were saying that Ted had said about the album, which is that he wanted it to be very up, as opposed to kind of a down or dour sound he wanted to keep it up like a party sound or a you know an energetic sound right is the brevity of most van halen albums is that they're most of them clock in just over a half hour you know and um my understanding is that there's not even maybe i'm wrong about this you'd know better than me that there's not even like a ton of extra material or deleted songs or b-sides or whatever sitting around out there i wondered if and to me the brevity is the magic you put on mm -hmm. van halen or any of the albums they're over in 35 minutes and it's 35 minutes of perfection and uh, you could start it right over again. Do you know if that was part of the philosophy going into creating an album? You know, I I don't know if I ever had like a, a big conversation with Ted about that. I mean, I don't think there was ever Ted never, for example, had, had in his mind like a, a Van Halen double studio album. Like he never would have okay. would have gone gone there. You know, I suspect part of it was that they really were on very, very short timelines in terms of what they were trying to do because you know one of the things that ends up happening to a lot of bands i mean happened to almost you know unless you become a super super power band out of the out of the gate or you become like again like a fleetwood mac where you could sort of do whatever you wanted because you're so big the eagles you know they they had a the, the way their contracts worked, their record contract worked van halen's was but they were basically had to deliver an album a year Mm. Again, I don't know. I never, I've never seen the original contract, so I don't know, you know, it was 14 months or whatever, but it's approximately an album a year. And so if you think about that, you, you record an album, then you have to, you write, you record an album, then you go on the road and then you have to come back, take a week to try to get your brain back in the right headspace and start all over again. And so I think that was part of the thinking of Ted too, was that, you know, just let's just nail, you know, nail it down 10 mm -hmm. songs, let's do it and make them like you say, shine from front to back. Mm -hmm. There was never going to be a, you know, let's, you know, let's, let's go to the studio for at least before 1984, let's go in the studio for six months and work on these yeah. songs. So it's more like, we got to get this done because we got to get yeah. the record mixed, mastered. And then those guys have to be back on the road, you know, yeah. oftentimes, like three, oftentimes like three, honestly, like three to four months after they got home from their last tour, especially sure. at the very beginning, the very couple first tours, um, yeah. they were first couple tours, they were really right back out there. 
Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I ask is because I, so I'm imagining this band that's been, you know, the hottest thing in their in their hometown. You know, they're playing the house yep. parties, they're playing the clubs, they're playing the bars. And those shows have to be longer than 35 minutes. You right. know, I imagine they're playing for an hour, hour and a half, maybe even two hours, which means some of these songs in those infant stages might have been really stretched out. Maybe Eddie does finds a couple of moments within these songs to play like super long solos or right. Alex does a drum solo or whatever. Right. right. But yeah. it doesn't seem like anyone thought that we want to recreate the part, the house party vibe on this album. We want to nope. strip it down to its bare essentials so that it can be pack as big a pot, uh, wallop as possible in 35 minutes. You know, I think the, the point you're making really goes back to what we talked about from the very beginning with Van Halen. The, idea behind van halen was to do hard rock heavy clash heavy metal songs in a very very pop friendly way and that was the thing about a lot of the hard rock and heavy metal of the 70s was really like you know let's jam like even like zz top these other groups you know they, they might have a, a pop deep purple smoke on the water alice cooper the, they all had these longer songs and i of course yeah. i love alice cooper you know school's out i can listen to that all day long it's it great but there were there was a um, this idea that you would sort of black sabbath you stretch mm. out and do these long explorations and you know that was never going to be well i should say never but that was at that point in time by the time they made their first record whether that was was um you know already built into a lot of the van halen dna which i think it was but also ted sort of kind of reinforcing that to go no, they're going to be quick, mm -hmm. bang, bang. So, you you know, we don't do five and a half minute songs. They, yeah. you know, Van Halen didn't do that. Even, I mean, even to 1984, there were a couple of songs that were probably the, on the longer, longer end. But even a song like Everybody Wants Some, it's, which seems long, mm -hmm. is really not that long. It just was the sort of the Van Halen philosophy was make these songs little bite sized nuggets to enjoy that are, that sure. are quick and, and rather than sort of longer songs. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. All right, second to last song, Ice Cream Man. Um, this one, apparently, Dave had been covering since even before he joined Van Halen. Oh my, my, I'm your eyes remain Stop me when I'm passing by See, now all my flavors are guaranteed to satisfy Hold on a second, baby I gotta put my banana Dixie cups All flavors and push-ups, too I'm your eyes remain, baby Stop me when I'm passing by See, now all my flavors are guaranteed to satisfy Hold on one more well, I'm usually passing by just about 11 o'clock. <laughs> I never stop. I'm usually passing by just around 11 o'clock. And if you let me cool you one time, you'll be my regular stop. All right, boys. I'm going to put my vanilla Dixie Cups on flavors and push up to I will say that 
prior to it really picking up and becoming heavier. I'm not really into the country scatting Jim Dandy ver uh, half of this song. I It's fine, it's fun, but it's not anything I would go back to. I really like it when it starts to pick up. Did Dave have to, was this always in the plan to, to include this on the album? Was this something, one of the quotes from your book is that this is Dave's to sell. And I thought, was Dave the one saying, you guys, I need a moment or I want a song on this album and this is the one I'm picking? Was it, you know, political like that? No, I don't, I don't, I mean, I don't know that for sure. I never heard that from okay. Ted and I don't know, I've never read anything like that. I would think that the, the you know, my, my point in, in doing that was that, was that it was, it's just with the acoustic guitar and Dave, it's basically, it's all Dave, right? It's sort mm -hmm. of, you know, if it's gonna, if it, if it was gonna flop, it okay. was because Dave would have yeah, flopped and made it flop, right? But, but the other thing I would say about Ice Cream Man is another example of a song that, again, I don't know if the guys pushed for it or Ted pushed for it or a combination of both. I mean, obviously, if it made the re first record, Ted obviously really liked it and those guys obviously liked it. But um, it was one of those songs that, as you observe, had its genesis way back, probably back to when Dave was not in, even in Van Halen, that he was doing, if I remember correctly, he was doing it as an acoustic he did some like acoustic solo performances at a, a place called the Ice House in Pasadena, where he would get up there and kind of um, do a singer-songwriter thing and play covers and strum songs and do his thing. So it had a long, long legacy for for Dave going back. And so, yeah, another one of these cover songs that the band had already in its repertoire. And Ted's like, yeah, we should do that. But I honestly, I don't really, yeah, I don't know what the thinking was. Other than I would just tell you that for me, when I hear it, I, it, it lets me know that Ted had enough confidence in Dave and it had confidence in Dave, obviously that he would like, you know, cause if you were, you know, if you were trying to sort of, uh, you know, downplay the singer, which is impossible in a band like Van Halen anyway, you would have yeah. maybe not given him like a, a two minute, you know, solo guitar thing to do by himself, basically with him yeah. just strumming along. Yeah. And it's, uh, it comes back to almost being a vote of confidence after all the concern about his vocal abilities. If you're going to, put a little unplugged section in here where it's just Dave, his voice and an acoustic guitar, you're kind of saying we have more faith in you maybe than we did before or than others do. Yeah. Dave. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. Okay. I mentioned earlier, I wanted to read some reviews. I always try to read Robert Criscow's reviews. If there are one, if there is one for an album like this and he's, he's a trip because I know he's super respected and everything, but so often I can't, his reviews are so snarky that I almost can't tell sometimes if he likes something or not. Right. And uh, for this one, he gives it a C and he says, for some reason, Warners wants us to know that this is the biggest bar band in the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> exactly. This doesn't mean much. All new bands are bar bands unless they're Boston. That's a good line. The term becomes honorific when the music belongs in a bar. This music belongs on an aircraft carrier. And, I, but then he gives it a C and I think, well, I think music, on an aircraft carrier sounds kind of cool, but apparently that, I don't know. Is that not a good thing? I can't tell. I, you know, I, I, I always loved that review because I thought that line was, I, you know, I felt like it was dismissing Van Halen. Um, and I, but I think that was my take on it, but I think there yeah. is, it is the interpretation is like, you could be like, wow, you know, the band is playing on the deck of an aircraft carrier. That, that would be pretty badass. But I, I yeah. suspect, I suspect, and again, I don't know for sure 
um, I suspected what he was saying was sort of like the the, uh, the the whine of an aircraft engine, just sort of like a like a loud. Thing. It's like you know, like you're on the deck of an aircraft carrier. It's like 150 decibels, and it's like just like sheer noise that's I like guess. Almost intolerable. I guess, but I don't know. I mean, you know, I I I never read that as a as a particularly positive review, but there are so many reviews like that that are yeah. There's a sort of a go, but go keep going. Well, so the other one, of course, is the Charles M. Young. Uh, okay. review from the Rolling from Rolling Stone magazine. And so he says, mark my words. Basically, within three years, Van Halen are going to be fat, self-indulgent, and disgusting. And uh, but then later on in their when they count down their top 500 albums of all time, this album comes in at number 410. And uh I I think it speaks to a critic's impulse or reflex to want to be kind of snarky and negative and cutting and sarcastic out of the gate as opposed to being like an appreciator either that or you know maybe the they rolling stone didn't like led zeppelin at first either and they had to kind of you know eat some humble pie on that one too so it really makes you wonder if like anyone were they was it just people trying to kind of outsmart everybody or I don't know. Like, well, why? if I remember correctly about that's Charles M. Young. If I remember correctly, Charles M. Young was one of these these critics again, very well respected, and actually wrote he wrote the Musician Magazine interview with article on Dave, Ed, and Van Halen in 1984. It's actually probably cool. the best article that was ever written on that on Van Halen. Wow. I, um, it's on the it's on uh, web. You can check it out, but um, it's really really insightful about the relationship between Dave and Ed. But I I, sus- I sus- if I remember correctly. He was a guy who really liked punk and new wave. That that was sort of you know sort of the, you know television, yeah. Blondie, the Ramones, the New York scene, the L.A. Sure. scene, whoever he liked. Those were the groups he liked. And so again, a band like Van Halen just yeah. seems to be like you know like dinosaurs. Like are these right. are they, is the Warner Brothers serious trying to make us like this like rehashed yeah. heavy metal band? This is a joke. This, that stuff's over. Deep Purple's over, man. Right. Like Alice Cooper's over. Um, you know, I think that's where he was coming from. But that I did read he kind of walked that back at some point. Going, like, yeah, I may have gotten that a little bit wrong. Right. But it's a great, you know, it's a great. It was a great review. I love it. Yeah. I, mean, I was. I love those reviews. Yeah, yeah. I could see that. I didn't know that he had an affection for that kind of stuff, and that makes that makes more sense. I do find it interesting when Rolling Stone would assign the new wave guy to write the Van Halen review. Why not write? Why not assign somebody else who has a preference for that kind of stuff? Right. Right. Know. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. All right. The last track is on fire.
my least favorite song on the album. It's the one I forget that's even there. And I will say, uh, as perfect and transformative as this album is, to me it ends a little bit on a, on a whimper. Between Ice Cream Man and On Fire, it's sort of forgetful, but uh, that's understandable. Back then, you would front load your albums and you'd place the, you know, you kind of work from there. They're like the last scenes in a Saturday night, last skits in Saturday Night Live or something. Right. They're the ones that people have the least amount of faith in, so they plug they plug them in there at the end. I don't know if you have any interesting stories or tidbits about this one. No, I mean, I think it's interesting you say that about that song. You know, I it, it became a kind of a staple of Van Halen's concerts it was their mm. opening song on their 78 tour and oh, I, I think on their, on their 1981 tour I, I don't remember if they did it in other years but they definitely did it in 78 81 they opened their shows with it and so the thing that i would say though it's it's one of those songs actually that you know if they had left it off i love the song but if they had left it off the record i don't think i think it was you know if you're a van halen fan and you like that song and i do like that song it's sort of reinforcing uh. it's it's reinforcing what's already there which is like mm. this is a kick-ass band that writes good songs if you're like you know, if you're not as much of a fan of that song, I think, I think in all fairness, it's probably a song you you could have left off the record mm-hmm. and saved it for the next record, and it wouldn't have wouldn't have affected the mm-hmm. reception of Van Halen one at all, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, and I should clarify because this came up on another deep dive I did earlier today. It's not that I don't like the song; it's that when compared to everything else on this album, it to me is the weakest track. Sure, you know, sure. I would still give it like a six or seven out of ten, but everything else is so sparkly and perfect that this one kind of lags behind a little bit to me. Yeah, for so. me, the the other thing I was going to say that I was really enjoy about the song is that of all things is the fade, mm-hmm. which isn't isn't being snarky or ironic. Is that you can hear. In the it, it's um, I, it's hard to tell whether it's it's Eddie's guitar making it or it's Dave screaming, but it almost sounds like an air raid siren in the mm. in like you know kind of in the fate of the record. And I always I never asked Don Landy or or Ted about that. I maybe I will ask um, ask them about that whether that was intentionally done to sort of you know to sort of um, to uh, echo the beginning of the record with the with the slow the slow Good down point. car horn or whatever. But it's I I could never tell whether it was the was a scream or what they did to make that sound. Again, it's a song that I I. I definitely like, but I think you're you're right insofar as it, if you're going to like, you know, cut a song from Van Halen one, it's probably going to be in the top one or two that most people would think should be. Could you right. could cut get away with? I mean, you're not going you know, to cut. Ain't talking about love, no. You got to go right. through and sort of like you sort of like you know, there's not too many suspects. You're you know, yeah. feel your love tonight. No, I don't think you should cut that. Jamie's crying. No, yeah. yeah. So that's right. That's it. Yep. Okay, that's the end. I don't know. Did I? Uh... Is there are there any outstanding stories or interesting bits of trivia or color that we didn't get to or that I didn't bring up or anything that you can think of? You know the the, the other thing I always think is fun about the about the the Van Halen first record story, which I, I like to tell people, and that Ted went to you know some length in the his his forthcoming book or should the forthcoming is but basically out or will be out um, his his new book is that that there weren't there wasn't tremendous enthusiasm inside the halls of Warner Brothers for mm-hmm. Van Halen when the record was finished, that there was a sense that, you know, from Ted's perspective, it was sort of like, you know, they were sort of like, yeah, this, this, this seems good, Ted. You, you seem to be really jazzed about this. That's good. You know, <laughs> it, but it was sort of like, you know, come on, we got, we got the sex pistols. We got, right. you know, we got, you know, and they kind of go down the list of all the, all the act. We have disco. There's all this other stuff that is going to be much more marketable and we're going to sell more copies of. And so for Ted, that sort of became a, a real red flag for him because he was he didn't want to see Van Halen not get a fair shot. And so he right. really was um, even more determined to try to help those guys as much as he could behind the scenes as, as a executive at Warner Brothers. Yeah. Beyond the producer, he was a guy who was obviously very high in the corporate food chain and could, could do what he could to sort of help 
push the record along and, and make sure people were, were giving them the proper attention because he just said it was like the quote from the um, Ted's autobiography. He said it's like it's like you, you're you're dating you have a new girlfriend in high school and you introduce them to all your your friends to this girl and you you think it's like the hottest girl in school and they're just mm-hmm. all like yeah she's all right you know like well yeah she's okay and you're just like well wh- wait what i mean this is right. smoking she is right. she is like gorgeous and you guys think she's okay you know it's like he yeah. said it was kind of like that for him he was just he didn't quite get why other people didn't get it um you know so he was even more you know kind of wanting to double down on van halen makes sense well all right um so that's it. Uh, your book will be out now by the time this comes out. Once again, it's Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music. And uh, if anyone out there does not already know, go back and pick up Van Halen Rising as well. It is basically the definitive document of the early days and formation of Van Halen. And it touches on this album, which is one of the greatest debut albums in rock history. You know. Um, thanks for talking with me, Greg. Hey, John, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. Hope I get to see you again soon. It's been a couple of years. We'll be great to get together again. And uh, hopefully this summer, but I'm kind of hope, wondering if that's going to happen or not because yeah. of all this craziness going on in the world. But um, yeah, appreciate appreciate your time. And uh, yeah, anyone who wants to uh, connect with me, please feel free to hop on Twitter. I'm at Greg Renoff and find me on Facebook and all that good stuff. But yeah, at Greg Renoff on Twitter. And otherwise, I'm, I'm around. Good. And uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to say I that weekend that... You and I and BJ Cramp and Eric Miller spent at the Rock and Pod Expo in the same Airbnb or whatever it was that weekend. That's one of the that's one of my favorite memories of my entire life. I uh, hanging out with you. It was hanging out with you and getting deep in the weeds on all of our lives and the complications in our families and in our marriages and the music we like and the struggles of podcasting and the struggles of writing and all that kind of stuff. It was just one of the most hearty and life-affirming experiences of my entire life. There you have it, Greg Renoff. All right, the books are Van Halen Rising, which has been available for a few years. It's excellent. And the new one is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Before I tell you how you're going to win this, I just want to say real quick, that weekend I've talked about, you know, I always ask our guests what their tastiest memories are. One of my tastiest memories was that weekend that I spent in the Airbnb with Eric Miller, BJ Cramp, and Greg Renoff in Memphis at the second Rock and Pod Expo, just having deep, meaningful conversations with guys that I admire and I love and I am so honored to call my friends. And so... That was just one of the best. The four of us just get really deep on life and family and good things and bad things and hardships and challenges. It was beautiful. It was one of the most meaningful experiences of my life. So anyway, thank you, Greg, and anyone else who's listening. Uh, that was just the best. Now, we finally broke down and created a Patreon page for the podcast. If you go to patreon.com slash the hustle pod, you can donate whatever you want. We've created two tiers. The first tier is $2 a month. We'll qualify you for any giveaways that we ever have. Now, I purposely don't have not always sought a lot of giveaways because frankly, the postage can get really pricey. But if we're gonna have the Patreon page and people are gonna donate, I want to be able to pay you back for that by offering more swag. So I'm gonna do my best to try and step that up. I probably won't be at Pat Francis level, but I'll do my best to get some things out there for all of you because I just want to pay you back with and show you my gratitude. 
So for $2 a month, that will qualify you, set it and forget it, that will qualify you for any giveaways we ever have. Secondly, there is a $5 a month tier, and this one is kind of painful for me, as you can imagine, because for the $5 a month, I will keep you informed of what interviews I have coming up, and you can submit questions for those interviews. That's painful for me because, as you guys know, I like to keep this stuff secret. I love the sensation of, on Tuesday morning, changing out our cover page on the Facebook page, a cover photo, so you guys can see, oh, that's who today's guest is. Sometimes you know him, sometimes you don't. I really get off on that secret, secretness, but... I want, again, I want to show my gratitude for all of you. And so I want those who want to be involved can get involved. I will let you know who my get who I'm interviewing and you can submit questions for possible inclusion in the interview. Okay. Those are the things. Uh, hopefully we can make this work. I'm still figuring it out. I know we have a lot of listeners that aren't active on Facebook. I posted this on Facebook recently. Uh, so Greg Chittister and Brad Page and Megan Wakefield and all of our other friends who aren't big Facebook users Hopefully you can get involved if you want. It's very humbling for me to even mention all of this because I try not to go here, but I really want to pay you guys back for your love and support by offering gifts whenever I can. And this is the only way I know how to do that. Okay? So anyway, I will include a link to the Patreon page in the description of this show right here. So you can just tap on that if you want. You can join one of the tiers. You can do whatever you want to do. Okay? Um, Or you can do nothing. We we respect that as well. But anyway, love you all. Next Tuesday, we have another normal episode coming. And I still have like four or five deep dives in the can and a recap and some other stuff. So you're going to be seeing a lot of content hopefully over the next few weeks. Okay? Stay safe, everybody. We love you.